Good morning. You can open your Bibles to Philippians 2. We're going to be looking at Philippians 2, uh, verses 19 through chapter 3, verse 1. So I have a question. Well, to start off, I'm going to show you a few pictures here. And these are some of the most famous images in the world. Um, And so when it comes to painting, of course, I have to start um, with Mona Lisa. And I want you just to think a little bit about these, about pictures and, and what we learn and what, you know, what happens um, out of having a picture of something. I confess I'm not that much of a painting guy. Um, I don't fully understand all of this. I think the, um, the insurance policy on this was somewhere about close to $800 million. It's, it's viewed as that valuable. So I'm more of a photography person, so I'm going to go and show you some pictures of, of photography, which is what I tend to enjoy. So here's a picture from 1910, and it is, um, it is called the steerage, and it often gets associated with immigrants, and you, you look at this and assume that it is a, a ship that's landing and people are ready to get off. In actuality, it's the reverse of that. Um, they were headed to Europe, and likely a lot of these people had come and possibly been turned away. What struck the photographer, he was very wealthy, and I'm sorry you can't see this better, but he was very wealthy, and he was actually up here on the first-class deck, and what struck him was just all of the wealthy folks up here and everybody else down here. So this is a picture from 1910 and one of the world's most famous um, pictures. Here's another one um, from 1992, and it is the famine in Somalia. So the person that took this picture wanted to go and report on the famine, and he couldn't get anybody to fund him. He couldn't get any news agencies to back him. And so he went on his own, and this he worked with the Red Cross. This was one of the images he sent home. It had such an impact that the Red Cross raised more money for, for this event than anything that has happened since World War II. And out of this, they were able to feed about a million and a half people in Somalia. So, I mean, the power of a, of a picture. I'll show you one more that's very famous. Um, does everybody's mind automatically go to the era of when this picture is taken? So this is about 19, it, well, it's the Great Depression. And again, there was a photographer that went, and she was, um, she was actually sent and asked to tell the story. She took, and this just boggles my mind for this time period, she took, I think, 160,000 images, if I I had the story right. This one image um, has become world famous. The lady is 32 years old, and you can just feel the worry and you can tell that life has been hard. Brought this back, and Congress decided to send, I think, 20,000 pounds of food to help out with the Great Depression. So these are some famous pictures. I have a question for you. When you think of a portrait or a picture of what does it mean to live a life of humility and service, what comes to mind? When you think of a portrait of humility and service, what comes to mind? And with that uh, with that in mind, I'd invite your attention to Philippians 2 and I'm amazed at how, how God, through Paul, I think gives us, he gives us a lot of pictures actually, multiple pictures of what humility and service look like. 
Um, so just a real quick, a little bit of background on this, um, on the series that, where we've been so far. In chapter 1, um, we looked at Paul's prayer and God completing the work in us. Uh, verses 12 through 18, we looked at um, Paul in prison, doesn't know what's going to happen, what were his anchor points. Um, we looked at, uh, last time we looked at um, God working, us working out what God is working in us. And so that's where we are um, when we come to our passage today. And I just want to, one thing to note in your Bible, um, more important than verses or chapters is paragraphs. And so the paragraph in chapter 1, it's a new paragraph at verse 27. And that paragraph runs all the way, um, let me make sure I have this right, through chapter 2, verse 13. And then verse, uh, chapter 2, 14 through 18 is a paragraph and then 19 through verse 1 of chapter 3 is a paragraph. So I want to read the text today, um, starting in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that, I short, that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. And is safe for you. So when you first read over this, it almost seems like he's um, just discussing details and travel plans and, and just laying out what, what's about to happen. And that's, that is a part of it. And so when we read through scripture, I think it is good for us to remember that these were normal people. And they had to work out the details and they had, they had emotions and they, they got sad. They worried about things. They didn't know how things were going to turn out. So here you have Paul under house arrest, and he wants to check on the church, um, and he's talking about who would be free to go and, and how all of this might work. But if you look at the whole chapter um, and bounce all the way back up to the start, I think what, what he's doing is actually giving us a picture of the first couple of verses of the chapter. And I just want to read um, chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so then he goes on and he, he gives us the example of Jesus. And if you look down in verses uh, 17 and 18, he's using himself as an example. And then now in the end, he's, he's pointing out Timothy and Epaphroditus, of what it looks like to actually live out um, the verses there, there at the top. So 
with that um, background, um, I want to want to jump in and look at the life of Timothy and Epaphroditus a little bit, and hopefully give us an an image of what it looks like to live this out. So he starts out in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So I think he's really, when he talks about hoping in the Lord, I think he's or thinking that God is going to lead him to send Timothy. And he tells us why he wants to do it. He wants to send Timothy um, so that he might be cheered up about the news from Philippi and, and also that they would be encouraged. It has the word there, um, that I too may be cheered. And so he was hoping um, that they would be cheered as well. Then he goes on to say, why Timothy? For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So here's Paul, and I don't, I don't fully understand this when he says he has no one like him. Obviously he has other brothers that are faithful, but, but he's saying there's, somebody, there's something about Timothy. I have, there's nobody else that I can send that's like him. And when it talks about having no one like him, which the battery's about dead and I can't point anymore. But the words where it says, having no one like him, um, it literally means the idea of being of a like soul. That literally, he's like, he, Timothy is just like me, is, I think is what he's saying. Um, of course, I had to think of, uh, of the term of kindred spirits um, from Anne of Green Gables, but I think it meant more than that. So he's saying, I have nobody like Timothy, and the reason is that he's going to be genuinely concerned about your welfare. And the idea of, of him being genuinely concerned, there's no, he has nothing in it for himself. There's no ulterior motives. He's not trying to look at it. He's just genuinely concerned. One of the things I find interesting is the word where it talks about being genuinely concerned is the exact same word for anxious that he uses in chapter 4 where he says, be anxious about nothing. But in this case, he's saying, I'm going to send you Timothy. I'd like to because he's actually going to be anxious about you and concerned about you. So there's a level of, of concern. Um, so it's interesting that that word gets used in both positive and negative ways um, through Scripture. One of the things I thought was helpful is John Piper, when he was talking about the word being both negative and positive, um, is that he said one is motivated by love, which is Timothy, and in chapter 4 it's motivated by fear. And so that's a good distinction, I think, of, of how to look at that. So he's saying, I have nobody else like him. He's going to be genuinely concerned. And then he makes another statement. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And if you think back about what he's just said in chapter 2, he says, you know, look out for the interests of others. And so when I read this verse, I would have expected it to read, for they all seek their own interests, not those of others. But he says they, that temp, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And so when I read that, the having Jesus Christ as my interest will naturally flow out in an interest in others. And those things are interchangeable. That if I have Jesus Christ's interest as my own, it will come out in an interest of others. Then he goes on, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. So I want to just spend a little bit of time looking at the life of Timothy. And I, I love the the contrast of these examples. So here we have Timothy, and we know actually quite a lot about Timothy. When it comes to Epaphroditus, we know very, very little. 
So just quickly, I want to remind us of what, of what we know about Timothy. Um, he was possibly converted or came to the Lord on either one at Paul's first missionary trip or maybe even before that. We don't know. But when Paul got to his town, the crippled man was healed, and the town people came and they tried to sacrifice to Paul. And Paul said, no, 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 and, uh, and I pointed them to Christ. So this happened in Timothy's hometown. We don't know if that's when he was converted or if it would have been before then. Then on his second missionary journey, Paul comes back, and it talks about Timothy. There was a disciple there named Timothy. He was well spoken of by the brothers. In verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And so Timothy does. And in verse 4, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So Timothy, you know, I don't know what all he left behind, but he goes with Paul. And again, just want to think through what does it mean that Timothy had a genuine concern for others. So Timothy goes with Paul. Um, in, in Acts 17, the next chapter there, things get dangerous and they send Paul off. Um, and then Timothy, they left Timothy and Silas behind and Paul was waiting that, for them in Athens to catch up. And I want to just, just think through some of the things that Timothy was actually willing to do. He's one of these characters that's just woven throughout the whole Old Test- I mean, New Testament. And think about what he had to do. And this is out of 1 Thessalonians 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know we are destined for this. So basically, you have a church that is facing persecution, and Paul can't take it anymore, and so who does he send? Timothy. So imagine if it's your job to go try to build up a persecuted church. And then he goes on to say, after he'd been there for a little while, then Timothy comes back and brings the news. So Timothy's willing to travel with Paul. He's willing to go and and help churches out. Um, In 1 Corinthians 4, and we know some of the issues that were in the the Corinthian church, Paul sends Timothy. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. So Timothy goes in and is asked to to address this for Paul. We don't know the story, but we do know that Timothy landed in prison at some point. There's one verse at the end of Hebrews that says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So if you think about all that, that Timothy has been, Timothy and Paul have been with together, I think that's why Paul is saying, I have nobody like him. I know this man. I know his heart. And he's going to come, and he's going to be concerned about you. And so that's why he wanted to send him. Then he, he ends this, and he says, I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So he's saying all this about Timothy, and then in the end he says, you know what? I actually need Timothy to stay with me until I know what's going to happen to me. And then I hope that we both can come. And isn't this interesting? This is somebody who's writing and telling us, put others' interests first. And here's Paul saying, you know what? I can't let go of Timothy right now. I actually need him here. Is he contradicting himself? I don't think he is at all. 
but I think, I think it actually is an important balance that we actually are to, it's not wrong to have our own needs met, but we are to put others first. So here we have Paul in this very passage saying, I'm going to keep Timothy because I need him here, and I trust that shortly I'm going to send him to you. So just thinking back on the life of Timothy, Paul says he's like-minded, he's concerned about their good, he does not seek his own interests, and he has a proven track record of being genuinely concerned. So think of all that Timothy's been through, and at this point, there are no big crowds anymore. Paul is literally sitting in house arrest. They're not traveling around and doing lots of miracles, but Timothy is, is right there. And if you read, the book of Philippians actually starts... Paul and Timothy. And so I don't think that Timothy necessarily wrote the book, but he stayed there with him and just continued to serve Paul. Again, I don't know if this is, is for sure fact, but according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, Timothy went on to lead the church in Ephesus. And then the story is told that he died in his 80s when he observed a, there was a celebration um, that was very raucous for idolatry. And he tried to step in and point out the error of the celebration. And the story is told that he was martyred that, at that point um, in his 80s. So that's Timothy and just genuine concern for others. Then I want to move on uh, to Epaphroditus. I want to stop at this point and tell you a little bit about, well, about the name. And I admit this has no no value in illuminating scripture, but it's kind of a confession that you should be careful what you do with names because it will stick with you your whole life. When I was probably Caden's or Ashton's age, we were driving home from school with Nate's mom. And Nate's youngest brother, James, and I, we, we stopped at a pet store. And I have no idea why or how, but we actually convinced Emma to let us buy two mice. It was a great idea. So we brought these things home and uh, put them together in an aquarium. And um, shortly thereafter, we had uh, more little baby mice. So then we came up with this little plan. We needed two aquariums, and we built this little uh, mesh tunnel, and they could run from aquarium to aquarium. I think they at one point were loose in Nate's room. I don't remember how many got out. Um, anyway, we, eventually we had two. We had two little litters of mice before we got rid of any. We had something like 25 mice that we did not know what to do with. But the problem was we felt like we needed to name these things. So James had the female and named her Jemima, as in Aunt Jemima, and my male landed the name of Epaphroditus. <laughs> and forevermore when I read this passage, I think about my mouse, Epaphroditus. So I'm just simply confessing that, that sometimes things that you do when you're very young stick with you the rest of your life. And aren't particularly helpful. So anyway, with that aside, he, Paul shifts and talks about Epaphroditus. And the one thing I want us to understand is I'm going to read the extent that we know about this man. And this is in chapter 4, verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So we know that the, the church at Philippi sent Epaphroditus with a gift to serve Paul. And then, now bouncing back to chapter 2, let's look at, at the rest of what we know um, about him. 
I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Is that not a phenomenal description from Paul of what Epaphroditus, who he was? He starts out, my brother, and then fellow worker and fellow soldier. And I love this picture. There, here they are. Paul is literally sitting in prison. He, can't, he doesn't have his freedom. We're going to learn in a little bit that Epaphroditus nearly died. And they still see themselves as fellow workers and fellow soldiers that are absolutely in the fight for the kingdom of God. And if you would look at that, what can somebody who doesn't have their health and somebody who doesn't have their freedom, what are they going to accomplish? But yet, yet in God's kingdom, they can accomplish amazing things. So I just love the description that Paul has um, for Epaphroditus. And I actually rather enjoy that we don't know much about this man. So you have Timothy, who we know so much. And this man we know very little. There are people who think he was probably um, an ex-Roman soldier. We do not know that for a fact. Some of that is based off of his name. Um, is it, the root comes from um, a Greek god, Aphrodite. But again, that is people reading into the story, and we don't, you know, we don't know that for a fact. So Paul describes him, and then he goes on saying, I, I thought it necessary to send him. And the reason is, he's been longing for you, and he's been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So he was, he was homesick and concerned for his church, and he wanted to go back. And then it says that he was concerned because they heard that he was sick. Now, I don't... I guess I have a question. How are you when you get sick? And I confess that often I'm more concerned about people taking care of me than I am about people hearing that I'm sick. But I think that this shows us some of, of his heart. He was distressed because they had heard that he was ill. And part of the reason he wanted to go was just let him know that he's okay, he's fine. So he was very distressed. Um, Paul's thinking of sending him because of that. And then he goes on and says, Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So he's just confirming that he was sick. He almost died. And again, I find, I find this so interesting. Um, if you think of anyone who could have, you know, if, so one of the things that, that you hear a lot about is just the whole thing of, having enough faith for somebody to be healed. And if there was anybody that you would think that could have just prayed and asked God and, you know, just immediately healed Epaphroditus, would it not be the Apostle Paul? And I, granted, we don't know how God had mercy. God may have sent a miraculous healing. But yet, here's the Apostle Paul saying that, you know, God chose to have mercy because else I'd have sorrow on sorrow. And, and it seems like they... They prayed, and it doesn't seem like it happened immediately because he almost died. Um, so I think it's, it's just good for us to note some of those things. And then, you know, if you read through the first part of this chapter where Paul is saying, it's far better to be in heaven than it is to be here, you'd almost wonder, does he, does he feel sorrow at death? Well, absolutely he does. He's saying, you know what, if, if Epaphroditus would have died, that would have just been like one sorrow on top of another. And thank God that that's not what turned out. 
Then he goes on, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him and that I may be less anxious. And so he's saying, I want to send him that the church can be happy to know that he's okay and that Paul can actually relax a little bit because he wants to know how the church is doing. So I, I don't know, I just, I enjoy this. He's just going to great lengths to explain why he's thinking of sending them and what, what he's feeling and, um, and that he would, you know, he would be more relaxed if once Epaphroditus was with them. So then here is the only command in the whole passage that we're looking at today. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service for me. So he wants, here's Paul sitting in prison, very concerned about what kind of a welcome home Epaphroditus is going to get. And he's saying, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. And again, I love that this isn't, I mean, I think both examples are needed. We need a Timothy that we know a lot about that did a lot of things. Here's a man that we know very little about, but we know that he was willing to serve other people and he was willing to risk his life for the gospel. And Paul says, honor those kind of people. In God's kingdom, those are the people that need to be honored. So receive him in the Lord with joy. And I don't know, um, it almost seems like Paul was concerned that there are people that would have viewed it once Epaphroditus comes home, that they would have almost viewed him as a failure. Because he's, he's going to great lengths, I think, to, to point out and to build up Epaphroditus. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't know what all, they were, what all they were facing there. But he goes on to say that we are to honor them because he risked his life to complete what was lacking in your service. The word there um, for risking his life is very, it's at least interesting to me. It's the only place it's used in the New Testament. And it actually is a gambling term. And it has the idea of when you're going to take everything that you have and you're going to stake it all on one thing. Um, and so in gambling, it would be going all in and staking it all on one roll of the die. But in here, he's saying that um, he nearly died because he has, he's put everything in, he's risked his whole life to actually serve Paul, to get, to bring the gift um, to him and serve him. So is it any wonder when Paul is thinking about how to give us a portrait of what it means to serve, that he goes to Timothy, who he was probably closest to of, of almost anyone in his ministry, and here's a man who, who traveled and we don't even know what happened but was willing to literally risk his life to serve Paul. And that's who Paul points out um, as an example for us of what service means. Well, just looking at his, his journey, and again, we don't know, did he get sick on the journey? Did he get sick because of conditions in Rome? You know, we don't know a lot of those things, but just want to look a little bit about at where he was. So up here right at the top um, by Macedonia is Philippi. Um, that's where the church was from, and Rome is all the way at the very top corner there of Italy. And so when, when they wanted to serve Paul in prison, um, it wasn't just a quick little flight or a train trip over there. If he had went the whole way around by land, it would have probably been about 800 miles. 
And if he would have went as far as he could by road and then sailed across the sea, it was probably about 500 miles. So think in terms of six weeks and, and two months. Um, this is interesting to me because of spending a little bit of time over there. This is where, you know, where it's at today. So it would be, he would be leaving here, which is in Greece, and he needs to get to Rome. So either he would have come through here all the way up into Croatia, most likely came to Albania and caught a ship and went over to Italy. So again, we don't know anything about him. We don't know his age. We don't know if he was a leader in the church. We don't know if he was married. But here's a guy that the church trusted and said, take our money and whatever we have to serve Paul, and we want you to make this trip and stay there and serve him for a little bit and then come home. So this, I mean, he was probably looking at six months or more by the time he went and came back. Um, and somewhere along the way, um, he, he literally almost died. So I'm going to read a little bit out of a, um, a devotional by Ray Stedman just to understand what the term means about risking our life. That comes from a Greek word, and I'm not going to try to pronounce that, which means to throw yourself along some, someone or something. It's best translated in English to risk or to hazard or to gamble. This is what, um, and so then there was a, a group of people in the early church that set, what they did is they would volunteer to go in whenever there was anyone who was sick with an infectious disease or prisoners or anywhere it was dangerous to go serve people, they would go in and try to serve these people. Um, and the term is something like parabolani or parabolani of the early church. They were men and women who risked themselves. They formed a group agreeing together to move into any place of danger or risk to serve and help others. Whenever anyone was sick with a dangerous disease, they would go and minister to them. When they learned of men who were in dungeons, dangerous criminals, they would risk their lives to help them, to do something for them. In 250 AD, when the city of Carthage in North Africa was subjected to a plague that swept through the city and decimated the population, bodies were left lying all over the streets. No one would bury them. And because they were rotting and decaying in the sun, the plague was spreading throughout the city. The bishop of Carthage called upon the Christians of Carthage to be their parabolani and to risk their lives to bury these bodies. They did this, and the city of Carthage was spared. The plague was finally arrested because Christians dared to risk their lives. That is what God is talking about. The noun does not occur in the New Testament, but there is a verb form used when Paul writes to the Philippians about Epaphroditus saying he parabolanied himself, risking his life for you when he was sick, and that is what God is calling for today. So that gives us a little bit of a picture or an understanding of what, um, of what he was willing to do. All right, and then in, the, in some ways it could feel like, is this just tacked on or transitioning? But I do want us to know this is the very end of this paragraph and wraps up this subject before he goes on and, and changes subjects. Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So after all of, you know, more than one chapter of saying that we are to, our life is to be putting others' interests first, to serve others, he wraps up and says, at the end of all this, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, it's no trouble for me to remind you of this. And it's actually, a, there's a great safety in it for you. So I just want to think about that a little bit. Why, 
after all of that, does God bring us back and say, rejoice in the Lord, and that, that will be your, your safety or kind of your guardrails in, in all of this. And we'll look much more at the topic of rejoicing in the Lord um, later on in Philippians. Um, but I do want, just want us to know that God, God says there's tremendous joy in living this way, actually. And that he wants to bring us back to that and keep that in mind. So as I look at um, the life of Timothy and Epaphroditus, two things that I just want us to remember or highlight for us today. For Timothy, it was about having a genuine concern for the welfare of others. And that's what a servant looks like, a genuine concern for the welfare of others. And with Epaphroditus, it looked like being all in for the gospel and willingness to risk his life. And he just had everything about him was, was for the sake of the gospel, and he was all in for that. Let, uh, would you stand? And I'd like to um, pray and uh, close the service that way. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for who you are. God, thank you for your word. Um, thank you, uh, Lord, that you were willing to, to come down to redeem us. And God, uh, that you want to just change our hearts. And Lord, I just pray that you would um, continue to, to work in our hearts. And God, give us the grace and the strength to work out what you were working in us. God, thank you for um, these examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And God, I just pray um, for each of us here that you would fill our hearts with genuine concern for others. God, I pray that you would bring along people who would, would do that for us as well, that would be genuinely concerned for our welfare. And God, I just pray that you would help us to be all in, um, holding nothing back when it comes to giving our life for the gospel, um, for the advance of the gospel, for the sharing of the gospel. Um, so Lord, would you, would you do that work in us and uh, would you be honored and just give us your attitude and your heart this week. We ask that you would protect us and keep us in your care. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Blessings to you as you care for others and go all in for the gospel.